1: Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast which has consistently and repeatedly over the last three months of the window being open brought you the news before it became news. We hope you've enjoyed that because, of course, the window has slammed shut on all areas of Europe now uh, after yesterday's deadline day passed. and we're going to bring you up to date with all the concluded deals as well as analysis, starting with Duncan Castle's my normal and trusted uh, friend and colleague who's returned from his butterfly retreat uh, to rejoin us this week. We're going to start with um, a kind of roundup Duncan of um, what's been spent in the course the top five leagues and uh, how it differs and contrasts. To other years. Now you've come up with um, some interesting facts, Duncan, regarding the leagues outside of uh, the, the Premier League, that is, so the top four other of the five leagues and the spending they have committed in terms of it being the biggest spend and record spends in France, Italy, Germany and Spain, while PL spending uh, in England declined on net terms. and then, of course that window closed some two and a half weeks before yesterday's deadline in Europe.
0: Yeah, this is um, a round that Deloitte do on an annual, well, biannual basis um, with their um, analysis of transfer fees. And they're based quite a lot on estimated numbers. They're not absolutely on the money at this stage, um, but they're, they're usually um, a sound basis to go on. And what they are saying is that the across the, those top five leagues, We have a record spend um, gross of 5.5 billion euros on transfer fees, um, up by almost a billion euros in last year. Um, All of the leagues, apart from the Premier League, have increased their gross spend. The Premier League's um, on their estimated figures, is slightly down in gross spend. We'll see what comes out when we get the more reliable figures from, uh, like Sport CIS football observatory or the the, the ones I use. Like the the it's an academic institute in Switzerland, who who go to very extreme lengths to get these numbers right. We should get them before too long. The Premier League down, um, La Liga over a billion euros uh, for the first time. Um, Serie A, Bundesliga and League One all setting records as well as the Spanish League. Um, So interesting that you've got this spending going on across Europe, record levels of spending going on across Europe, but not in the Premier League. And and actually, if you look at the net spend figures for the Premier League, they're quite markedly down. So um, the Premier League net spend is at its lowest level since 2015. And as a percentage of the league's revenue... It's at its lowest level for eight years, just 11% of total revenue going on transfer fees um, once you take in the, the money they've received from selling players. I think there are, there are, you know, there are a couple of factors here. One, we've got, um, as we've, we said to you in the podcast, many times quite an unusual summer in that a lot of the top clubs were unhappy with their season last year and have been chasing um, success in the transfer market. So you've seen Real Madrid spend a huge amount of money to try and uh, re-establish themselves as the top club in Spain. Barcelona responding to that by spending heavily themselves. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain doing as Paris Saint-Germain always do, spending a lot of money, but also some of the other clubs in France using um, revenues they've received to invest, for example, Leo. Um, spending quite a lot of cash over there. In Syria, I, you've got really heavy spend, partly driven by their new tax laws, which allowed them to recruit foreign footballers to the league for the first time um, on uh, much lower uh, net salaries than they were able to previously, which has allowed them to put more of their revenue into transfer fees, coupled with their champions, Juventus, um, being one, wanting to keep the other the teams in their place by outspending them again, but secondly, targeting that Champions League win and uh, wanting to invest heavily in the team to go after the Champions League, which is the same phenomenon you have at Paris Saint-Germain and at Bayern Munich. Um, so you've got these clubs who are confidently and, and generally quite easily winning their, their domestic leagues, but their priority now is to win the Champions League. So even a season where they win the league, they go and spend heavily to try and chase that Champions League success. Contrast that with the Premier League, where Manchester City still have the most expensive squad in the history of the game, um, have spent more on transfers than anyone else, um, have kept their spending at the same level as their competitors, i.e. the most the the high spending of their competitors. So they're not ceding any advantage to their opponents. But um, realise, or their calculation is, that they can carry on winning domestically without going to those extraordinary levels of spend that they went to um, before Guardiola came in and in the first two seasons of, of Guardiola's regime. Um, and also conscious, of course, of financial fair play. Um, And then you have Liverpool, who spent hugely last year um, on their team in terms of transfer fees um, and uh, also put a vast amount of money into new contracts for their established squad, pushing up their wage bill heavily, and you'll see that go up again heavily for the last financial year um, and making a calculation that uh, it's better not to to go down that route again. Um, they won the Champions League, obviously. They feel they have the chance of winning the Premier League without spending uh, huge amounts. So I think that has functioned as a, as a kind of partial break on the Premier League spend, because you don't have that same uh, desire and intensity to chase success from um, the club's, at the top of the Premier League who have been winning that you have in the other European leagues from the, the, the really moneyed clubs over there.
1: Now, we'll come, Duncan, to analyse the Premier League performance uh, in terms of buying and selling players. Now, all windows are closed in a moment. just want to round up a couple of uh, issues from the final day. One, the transfer of Mauro Icardi from Inter Milan to Paris Saint-Germain. Um, It seems to me, Duncan, given his uh, history, let's say, uh, of um, interesting behaviour, issues on and off the pitch, uh, interesting issues in the dressing room, etc., etc., looks to me like while they've got a hell of a player, they might also have another
0: hell of a problem. Possibly, but um, I think they bring him in at a good time, assuming he's kept himself fit. Um, during that period of exclusion from Antonio Conte's uh, first-team plans because they, they have injuries to Cavani and Mbappé. Um, Neymar is staying against his will, but hasn't been playing with the team, hasn't been training with the team, and is coming back from an injury. So, so there you see a, a platform for Riccardi potentially to go straight into the, the Paris Saint-Germain team. And uh, and establish his his position in the squad. Um, Cavani is in the final year of contract, so um, down the line there is a there is a place for him there. Um, although Kylian Mbappe obviously wants to be the number nine, so maybe it will be a Cardi. Paired with Mbappe in, a, in a, a two-man front line, um, I think it's a good, certainly a good move from Antonio Conte's perspective, and that he's managed to get rid of a player that he wanted out of the squad, felt was a destabilising element, and wasn't going to use him. Um, for enter. they were being sued by Icardi for. Um, for, for damages, I think, of €1.5 million Euros, um, on the basis that he'd been excluded from the first team. So they've got rid of a problem there. I think they would have preferred, obviously, to sell the player. Um, they've managed to sell him outside uh, or they've managed to put him to a, a club outside Serie A with an option uh, to buy of €70 million, Euros, which will be a good price if the FPSG if activate that option in a year's time, uh, but keeps them away from competitor clubs like Juventus, which was part of their planning. So um, a good deal from Inter's perspective too. And, and remember, this is a striker who has a very good scoring rate in Serie A. There's a reason why Juventus wanted to uh, bring him from Inter when they when they saw that Conte didn't want to um, retain him in his squad. So they're they're signing a talented forward. But yeah, you're right. They're also signing a character who um, who could be an issue in the dressing room if he's not handled the right way. And um, you have to say they've left themselves with the, the biggest issue of all in the dressing room by not accepting um, the deals that were on offer from Barcelona at the end of the window to let... Uh, Neymar go back to Spain and um, you don't see that being a a calm and happy situation that will carry on through the season uh, regardless of what anyone says over the next few days about it.
1: Well, as all our listeners know, we uh, brought the Transfer Podcast live from Spain last week. Uh, We went to where the action was and uh, our good friend Graham Hunter did last Wednesday's podcast followed by the great Aurelio Capaldi on on Friday. We hope you enjoyed those in Duncan's butterfly absence. Um, With regards to Neymar, Duncan, um, given what's gone on, uh, and given the response of the PSG fans, um, of the French press, the Brazilian press, the Spanish press, two things come to mind. Um, One, uh, there is now a huge conspiracy theory um, in Spain uh, which uh, purports that and I don't believe this, by the way, but it's worth reporting and commenting on, that Barcelona's interest in Neymar was always spurious and was only to placate uh, the desires of Leo Messi to get Neymar to return to the club and reunite the two players, um, and that Barcelona were quite happy, if you like, with the outcome of not getting the deal done for Neymar given the complexities and the cost of that particular transfer. Um, the second issue that I bring up is that <clears throat> with Neymar now stuck in Paris for at least a year or, or say six months if he does leave Highland I think he'd leave in January because it would be Champions League Cup tight etc cetera, etc cetera. I mean Duncan this is not a case of of mending fences for Neymar is it this is more like rebuilding the Berlin Wall
0: yeah it's look I, I think um, I think the the idea that Barcelona had were reluctant about doing the deal and saw so, um, issues with doing the deal is perfectly feasible. It's something that people um, in Barcelona were telling me through this process. Um, something we discussed um, on the podcast was that this was very much driven by Neymar um, making a call to Lionel Messi after he'd come to an agreement to move to Real Madrid in February, saying. I'm going to go back to Spain. Um, I have a a proposal on the table from Real Madrid, but i prefer to come to Barcelona. Can you speak to the president and make that happen? So this was always driven from the player's side. And the key individual here wasn't Neymar. The key individual was Messi. Uh, We've seen how Barcelona have um, consistently uh, caved in to Lionel Messi's demands in terms of salary and status in the team down the years, for obvious reasons. He's one of the two best players in the world, best player uh, they have ever had at their club. The man who makes a difference. Um, They're not a particularly strong board. It's a board that is voted for. It's not a a board that owns the club. The club owns them, essentially. The fans own them. And and to that extent, Lionel Messi, to a certain extent, owns them. Um, It was obviously, from a football perspective, very strange deal and you know I think Graham Hunter explained it very well uh, on last Wednesday's podcast Um, they'd signed Antoine Griezmann they have an overload of attacking players to fit Neymar into that team was going to be a sporting challenge on top of all the other issues that come with Neymar including the massive salary um, and the uh, commission demands from his father, albeit that Neymar was prepared to take a pay cut on his PSG salary to go back to Barcelona, you're still talking uh, second highest paid player in the club and still one of the highest paid players in the world if they'd got that deal through. So there was the idea that Barcelona, at, at the very least, had to look like they were serious about doing this and had to had to go in at the deal as hard as possible to convince Messi and Neymar that they were trying to make it happen and if that was their ultimate plan then you have to say they appear to have succeeded in in that regard Um, obviously we'll have to see what Messi's response is but um, they haven't signed a player he decided um, not to push for the move to Madrid so his preference remains Barcelona um, and I guess we will see this soap opera, um, this Brazilian telenovela, carry on for the next um, eight, nine months till we get to another transfer window and we see where things are for uh, for Paris Saint Germain. Look, they know how bad Neymar has been. They know how much of a problem he's been for them. They know how many games he's missed. They know how good he can be on the on the football field and what he can provide as a footballer. But um, it's a very difficult situation for them to handle. And uh, it's going to be fascinating to see to what extent Neymar's behaviour changes around the training ground or in the dressing room within the team, whether he will uh, focus and deliver on the football pitch, uh, whether he he can deliver a season too close to his potential or whether it will uh, descend back into the usual problems he's had at Paris Saint-Germain for two years. Um, from their perspective, they do come out looking strong in the sense that uh, they made the decision not to sell the player. And, uh, and their briefing is that they, want to, they valued him at 300 million euros. Uh, Barcelona's offers did not match the €300 million Euro valuation, so they weren't prepared to do the deal. So they have that, um, that PR boost of being the strong men and, and blocking the player from going. But, but
1: Duncan, surely, surely that's nonsense because we know for a fact that PSG uh, met with delegations of Barcelona and Real Madrid on several occasions in the past two weeks. To negotiate the transfer of Neymar. Now we also know that neither of those clubs came up with the figure of 300 million euros in their dreams. So this PR s- slant from Paris um, is nonsense and cannot even be considered uh, to be anything but because the 300 million figure
0: has only just come out after the transfer window's closed. You can you can sell that stuff to your supporters any time. A lot, of, a lot of these PR moves are for, for the supporters to talk about the strength of the club. I um, mean remember we're talking, we are talking about Qatar here. This is uh, yeah. ultimately the decision of one man, the Emir of Qatar, whether he um, goes ahead with the, the deal or not. He was prepared to sell the player. Um, they had made that sporting decision that if the numbers were right, the player would be sold in this summer. Um, when it came down to it they decided the numbers weren't right so they didn't sell the player Um, however by keeping him regardless of what the actual reasoning was in the background regardless of the negotiations they do have that um, veneer or that image of being the strong men in the deal and saying we didn't sell to one of the big clubs in Europe because it suited our Analysis and our decision not to sell, which is something that will appeal. And was you know, one of the briefings I had um, from Qatar towards the end of this process was uh, Neymar will have to behave himself to get out. If he if he acts in the wrong way in the final weeks, they will shut it down and not let him leave because they don't want to be seen to allow him to leave on his terms. So that 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 pride that um, you know, that ability to say the sporting factor doesn't matter. This is about the football club we own and it's the symbol of Qatar. And if we decide we're not going to sell a player, we will not sell a player, was always there in the background. Now they have to deal with the repercussions of it, or at least they have to hope that um, their new technical director, the returning technical director, Leonardo, who is, who is Brazilian, remember, um, can smooth the path um, and get... Neymar focused on playing for the team and playing for his coach and playing with his teammates and and behaving in the camp. But all of that's a very big ask.
1: Well, someone I know who's close to, uh, Tam Tuchel, um, did mention to me that in a conversation he had with Neymar when it was looking very likely the player would have to stay was that the club would agree to a more um, lenient negotiating stance in a year's time, if Neymar buckled down, gave them a good season and, as you say, behaved himself, conducts himself in the proper way, doesn't disappear for his sister's birthday in the spring, um, and that way they will make it easier for him to leave, should he still wish to, um, next summer. Um, A bit uh, like the same way that Manchester United treated Paul Pogba. Um, Pogba wanted to go to Real Madrid, Real Madrid wanted Paul Pogba, but Manchester United didn't have the opportunity to either source, never mind even negotiate, um, a replacement for Pogba. And therefore, they did the Cristiano Ronaldo, um, as we called it, ruse, um, where they say, give us a year and then we will be realistic in our pricing of you. We'll be realistic in our negotiations with. The, play, the club that you want to go play for. So I think in some ways Neymar and, and uh, Pogba are in similar positions uh, in this season um, in terms of what they have to do in order to gain what they want next summer. Now, it's no great hardship when you think about for professional football earning hundreds of thousands of pounds per week <clears throat> to just be asked to do their job properly and then uh, go on with it and then you know, get their will uh, come next May or June or whatever. So it seems to me that uh, these sagas, Duncan, that we've been talking about for you know weeks, if not months now, um, we will still be talking about in the coming mm. weeks and months, but uh, I don't think we'll see any actual action until uh, next May.
0: That, that would be the rational strategy is to, to sell to Neymar the idea that buckle down, play for the team, demonstrate to the club you want to move to that you're worth all of that money in this season and you'll get your move in a year's time when the money is right for us. If you you perform for us for a season, as we know you can perform, we'll let you go in a year's time for the right money. That would be the rational scenario and it's one that's been used with players many times down the line. But we're dealing with Neymar here. Remember, this is the guy... Julio Gomez-Felio, our, our uh, Brazilian friend, described as a spoiled kid. And unfortunately, that has been the story of Neymar's career, um, particularly these two, two years in Paris Saint-Germain. And um, the spoiled kid, you've got to ask whether he is capable of growing up, because if you've, if you've had such a long period where it doesn't matter how you perform, you still have Barcelona and Real Madrid trying to sign you for ridiculous amounts of money, even though they should know exactly how problematic you've been for the last two years. Maybe it, it's impossible to get it into your head that actually just concentrating on what you're, what you are really good at, but what you haven't demonstrated, um, you're as good at as you should be, is the is the sensible approach to to getting a transfer.
1: Well, here's something to watch out for because I was speaking with a current league ad coach over the weekend and we briefly touched on Neymar's situation at PSG, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And I raised the possibility of Neymar staying and said coach said to me, I really, really hope he does. And I said, why? Is that because it's good for the prestige of the league? Uh, And, you know, obviously it would be a loss to the league if if he goes. He said, no. He said, because you know what I'll do when we come up against PSG. He's playing? I will wind my right back up so much to get stuck into him, knowing his temperament, knowing he will go absolutely bonkers if someone as much as kicks his shin a little bit, that he'll get sent off and all the frustration will come out again and he'll be one of the easiest players to play against this coming season rather than one of the hardest players to play against. So you heard it here, first people. Look out for your Ligue 1 action. Watch out for opposition right-backs and defenders going to Neymar and whispering in his ear and, uh, about his love of Barcelona and how he's lost it. So, um, yeah, just watch out for that oh, just,
0: one. Just, just one other little element in that. There's. Um, I've just had a, a message from a contact in France um, about how the dressing room responded to Neymar um, not getting his move. And I'm, I'm told that the, a number of Paris Saint-Germain players were teasing him with the phrase, Sakeda, uh meaning he stays, uh, which was famously used several years ago. So um, whether that augurs well for the, um, the future relationship of Neymar and his, and his uh, teammates this season or not, we will see.
1: Or indeed, cicada could mean fragile, jumpy thing. <laughs> which, which, which could which could also be a description of Neymar. So from one transfer um, saga Duncan to another, which didn't happen, um, as everyone uh, who listens regularly knows. Christian Eriksen uh, has asked for a new challenge. He made it clear to Tottenham Hotspur he probably didn't want to leave. Uh, he wanted to leave for a new. Challenge, I should say, um, preferably in Spain. That has now not happened. Uh, we can tell you that at a dinner attended by uh, Tottenham Chairman Daniel Levy, um, manager Pochettino, and his assistant, Hezra Perez, last Thursday night, Pochettino seeked assurances from Levy um, after probably two or three weeks of constant complaining and public griping. Not just about um, signings, but his position at the club. This is Pochettino, of course, and also the scheduling of the English transfer window closing before uh, everyone else's. assurance assurances that he would not be deprived of probably his most talented midfielder uh, in the coming season, regardless of the fact that Ericsson's entering into the final year of his contract. I'm told that um, Ericsson then saw Pochettino the, on Friday morning, the head of training was told for the first time this season uh, in terms of way ahead of uh, what uh, then transpired that he would start Sunday's game and was happy with that. Uh, Told Pochettino that his mind uh, in terms of his future had not changed and that he would still uh, look for a new challenge. But as long as he was respected and given the opportunity to play in a Spurs shirt in the meantime, then he would cause no trouble and that he would give everything for the club. Now, from Eriksson's point of view, Duncan, that's clearly the professional thing to do and should be lauded because he's not behaved like Neymar. He's not being spoiled. He's not throwing his toys out of the pram. But at the same time, Tottenham are in a pretty invidious position here because Eriksson holds all the cards. He now has less. there's less than four months now before the January window opens when potentially he could seek a move away. He's also in a position whereby he could sign a pre-contract with a foreign club on January the 1st to move for free next summer. Ericsson was told by Pochettino in that same meeting that the club would be in touch with his representatives in the coming few weeks, and I'm told it was within a month, to reopen negotiations on an extended contract at Tottenham Hotspur. Thing is, as I said, Ericsson holds all the cards here. He could sign a a, a, very much um, upgraded contract at Tottenham and obviously that would reduce his chances of getting a move. Or he could simply just see his contract out and uh, and move for free or even just sign, as we said, in January, uh, making it um, a a conclusion um, and open and shut case with regards to what he does next summer. (laughs) For Tottenham, it seems to be a a sore Duncan. you reckon, don't you, that the four months upcoming might not even be a period of relaxation or even truce?
0: Yeah, so legally he can't um, discuss uh, contracts or with other clubs until January um, or agree a pre-contract with other clubs, but obviously that's not how football works and um, those discussions can go on uh, with third parties representing him. Um, So it would be possible for him to agree a contract with with someone else effectively um, ahead of that time. Essentially, as we saw with um, Aaron Ramsey um, last season at Arsenal and that those discussions were going and then uh, were formalised, I think, in in January um, and the decision uh, published. And uh, I think as as, uh, Aurelio Capaldi pointed out um, on Friday, um, if it had been... Uh, in the domain of Juventus's then coach, Max Allegri, he would have made that transfer happen last January because he wanted the player in at that time. And, and perhaps that will be um, a potential outcome with Eriksen because um, if he does manage to get the club he wants to commit to him in that period, um, you could see that he would like to leave earlier. And you could also see Daniel Levy accepting... Um, Money uh, for the remaining half year of his contract rather than uh, letting it run down to, um, to a stage where he gets nothing um, interestingly I see that um, Erickson has talked to the Danish press um, after the game at the weekend and he was asked if he, if he was wrong to have said um, at the start of the window that he he wanted to leave and he, his response is no. I wasn't, Um, but it's football. You never know what happens in football. Many things always come into play. I wish I could decide just like in the football manager game, but unfortunately I can't. I know a lot of people are interested in where to to play. I understand that well. That's the way it is. For me, it's not been hard to clear my head. I don't read much of what is written. And now I've been involved for many years where there have been many rumours every year but it's clear that it's been a little more violent this year because my contract is about to expire. So no regrets about what he said. Um, <laughs> regret, if, it, if there was any, is that he wasn't able to control the process entirely by himself and decide um, and secure that move away. And no indication there that he's uh, changed his desire Um to want to play elsewhere and, uh, and is you know actively looking to sign a new contract at, at Tottenham Hotspur at present
1: We had a kind of um, rather interesting exodus of players from the Premier League over last weekend and the, so the last two or three days of the European transfer window. Duncan in particular Manchester United um, so Alexis Sanchez Mateo Darmian and Chris Smalling all moved to Serie A um, it's been it's quite an unusual um, situation, really. We touched on it last Friday with Aurelio, um, but there used to be the case where Serie A was like the strongest league in Europe and would attract all the best players, and that was the early nineties, etc., etc. But um, I'm not sure where they've got the best deal out of these players going, and um, you're quite uh, sort of stumped as to why Edward Ed would let Matteo Darmian uh, move as well.
0: No, not at all. I, I I'm. I just find it amusing that he's allowed Darmian to leave for a reported fee of one and a half million euros to Parma um, two summers after two consecutive summer transfer windows in which there were substantial offers for the player from Serie A, um, which would have got a good chunk of the money that Woodward invested in Darmian in 2015 back. Um, Instead, he's retained the player in the squad because he felt those offers in the previous two summers weren't um, good enough against his valuation of the player. He's kept paying the player for two more years um, during that period, Darmin has played a total of 885 minutes of Premier League football. Um, so you'd have to say that is once again a very, very bad bit of chief executive um, football decision-making because he's cost the club uh, tens of millions of euros, not only in the, the fee that he's lost for the player, but also... In terms of the additional wages they've had to pay for a player who has barely represented the club during that time, and you know, as we've said, this has been a pattern with Manchester United under Ed Woodward: um, the gross overvaluation of players uh, and the retention of players who really aren't um, first-team starters and don't manage to re-establish themselves as first-team first-team starters. Um, Alexis Sanchez is obviously. Another interesting case in that he decided not to take uh, the offer that Inter had proposed of um, €3 million for a loan fee uh, and then an option, an obligatory option to buy in a year's time, which have given a €20 million total fee to Manchester United for the player and allowed the player instead to go to Inter with no loan fee and with United subsidising a large proportion of his salary. Um, Inter were requiring him to subsidize salary regardless of whether it was a it was going to be a full transfer or not. But the the calculation that Woodward appears to have made there is I will sacrifice that guaranteed transfer fee, um, which isn't substantial, but also it's not bad either, in the hope that he has a good season at Inter and I can get more money for him in a year's time, Um, which could prove to be the case because you have to say that Sanchez is now out of the environment he didn't enjoy playing in. He's now with a coach who believes in him and wants to make him part of the first team. Um, He has had a period of recovery, um, so hopefully he's in a better physical condition and and should be able to, to demonstrate his quality in the field again. So there is the chance that that will be a gamble that pays off for Woodward. Um, And he does get a higher transfer fee in a year's time, but it's a gamble. Um, And let's face it, the gambles he's made during his years as executive vice chairman when it comes to transfers haven't come off very often.
1: And also we should mention the irony of the fact that the other player involved in the Sanchez transfer, um, Arsenal's Irish legend Mick Ohtarian, has also left Arsenal now as well and gone to Serie A, funnily enough. So that was a, a, a deal that didn't quite work out well for either club or either player.
0: Yeah, along along with Chris Smalling to the, the same team. Um, well, again, Smalling, of course, very recently signed a new contract in Manchester United, Duncan, obviously yes. offered by and uh, uh, endorsed by Ed Woodward. Yes, and, and that, again, you wonder what the thinking is there. Um, are you loaning the player with no option to buy or no guaranteed obligatory option to buy because you think he will increase his value during the season in Serie A again it could happen Um, you know he's still an England international he still has status in the English game you have the potential to sell him to other Premier League clubs but they've had that potential for some time now and they've turned down the offers for him so um, you're kind of placing it on hold and hoping it works. But if you're going to move one of the, the central defenders, the seven senior central defenders out of the squad, and obviously they had to do that, the rational thing was to, to get those numbers down, it's surprising that you let one of the two who you gave new contracts to, have substantial new contracts to, Go And the one who, through all this period of fluctuating managers, while not establishing himself as the top uh, centre-back with a guaranteed place in the team at Manchester United, has been the one who's been most regularly used. So Smalling has managed to, to get the most playing time of all those centre-backs who've, who've struggled to, um, to prove themselves at Manchester United. So you would have thought... Um, that from a sporting perspective he was the better one to retain as a reserve um, rather than Phil Jones and Marcus Rojo. But maybe, well we know they had the option to move Rojo out which they turned down. Maybe with Jones there wasn't an option there Um, and uh, they decided Smalling was the the best of the deals they can do or alternatively they felt they um, they, they liked Smalling better and uh, and would um, adhere to his request to move to a team where he get uh, regular playing time. So they're do it, doing it partly as a favour to the player, um, as opposed to a, a, a proper hardline sporting decision about what's best for Manchester United's squad through the season.
1: Well, from Manchester defenders to defending by Manchester clubs, let's talk a little bit, Duncan, about Aymeric Laporte. And the consequences of, as yet, an unconfirmed um, injury. We don't know what it is. Although the suspicion is it could be an anterior cruciate ligament injury sustained in the win against Brighton Hall Albion last Saturday. Um, it was very clear that um, that Guardiola was livid with his well his players, not just um, Laporte himself, but the way that they gave away possession, which allowed Webster to gain momentum and move up the field, Uh, but obviously the way in which Laporte then tackled uh, Webster and sustained that injury, leaving City and Guardiola with quite a defensive conundrum, Duncan, with regards to the fact that clearly they they, they lost Vincent Company, who left the club in the summer to return to Belgium. Um, Laporte, obviously his number one and most trusted central defender, but if, if it's the case that the injury is an ACL, then it could be weeks, if not months, that he's out. Um, what did you make of the challenge, Duncan? And, and what does it tell us about um, where City recruited in the summer and did they recruit in the right way, given company's departure? And what's going to be their defensive formation in the next, uh, say, let's say three or four
0: weeks? Well, if he's ruptured his ACL, he's out for a minimum of six months. And um, from a sporting perspective, generally talking to um, specialists in this area, they will say you can get a player back on the field in six months. But to get them back to top-level performance, you're looking at nine months. So if he has ruptured it, he's basically done for the season as the player he was. The tackle, I thought, was... um, in a sense, uh, he brought it upon himself because he didn't need to tackle in that fashion. It was a dirty challenge. Um, and he injured himself because he, he went in for that challenge. And I, I think it's kind of typical of, of Laporte's de- defending. Um, I've seen this throughout his time at Manchester City and that he, he does tend to throw himself into tackles. He does tend to try and make these um, recovery tackles and you see him sliding a lot um, which is always a sign of a defender who um, has got himself into difficult positions You know, the best defenders don't end up on their backside making challenges because they don't need to end up on their backside making challenges and I wonder whether Guardiola uh, would be saying to him afterwards why are you putting yourself in a position with that tackle where you end up with a potentially serious injury, because you were tackling a centre back, um, he wasn't going to be through on goal himself. Um, you could have you could have uh, done what I teach you to do, and what our players do at the other end of the field, which is pull shirts and and do little tactical fouls to stop a player, and had the same effect um, without risking your uh, risking your own. Uh, fitness off the back of it I think we had a a similar tackle in the the Old Firm Derby um, this weekend and I believe that one of the the Rangers players involved um, is now also in danger of a serious uh, long period out of the game because of the the violence with which he tackled his opponent Um, the key thing here of course is where City go without Laporte if it is confirmed that he's out was a, um, even for a few months with a with a, a knee injury, um, this is a serious detriment to their defence. Guardiola made it clear that he wanted to reinforce at centre-back this summer and he stated after the game at the weekend that he was prevented from doing so because of the financial limitations on the transfer market. Um, they decided to allocate the money they had, which is... Um, about £150 million gross was spent on transfer fees this summer um, on a new holding midfielder in Rodri and a new right-back in Jean Cancelo. He now doesn't have, if if Laporte is out, he has no centre-backs he fully trusts. Doesn't have full trust in John Stones, doesn't have full trust in Nicola Otamendi. Laporte was his guaranteed starter. Laporte was also fundamental to him in terms of starting their attacks because one thing you can't question about Laporte is the quality of his passing and his, um, his ability to take out two or three opposition players with long um, diagonal balls um, as good as anyone I think in his position in the Premier League so they lose that um, they now they lose it at a time when they've lost as you say Van some company and um, he has Fernandinho, who he's training up to play as a centre-back um, and who Guardiola says he's not quite happy that he's had enough coaching in that new role to put him in there. He's talked about possibly using Carl Walker there, which is an option. Carl Walker's played centre-back, albeit in a three for England. Um, and you have Cancelo, obviously, to come in at right-back, which presumably has been the, the plan all along in terms of Cancelo taking over that right-back slot. Um so your your whatever you do now is makeshift. That's that's clear. It's not the ideal solution for them, um, and these are the kind of things that can make differences in what we expect to be a t- title race. Um, you know that injury, losing a key player if it turns into losing Laporte for six months or more, losing him from a defence which is already weak and which Guardiola is not happy with could make difference in enough points to allow Liverpool, if they sustain their early season form and sustain the the points tally that they achieved last season, to go over the edge and and take the title from Manchester City.
1: certainly the case that it's a a major blow for for City as much as Alisson has been for Liverpool, although obviously Liverpool have been coping pretty well um, under those um, situations so far. Duncan, I want to just raise the issue of, and, and briefly I suppose because it's it's a technical and analytical point, but the defending of Manchester United for the Southampton equaliser um, on Saturday's lunchtime game seemed to me to be very, very bizarre. Um, and I will explain my point of view and I would love to get your analysis of it as well. So, obviously, United uh, were in command of that game. They were were goal up. Um, A corner kick is taken, which is obviously first phase of play. Dunnings gets beyond his own marker to header a very, very powerful um, ball on target. It's saved by De Gea who pushes it out. However, at that point, the second phase of play begins. Danso crosses the ball in. If anyone... Wants to see it for themselves, please just do go on and, and Google it and whatever else. What you'll see is that Lindelof, the smallest um of the three players closest to the ball, is marking Vestergaard, who is the tallest of the Southampton and only one of two Southampton players in a Manchester United 18-yard area, which has nine Manchester United players in there. Pogba is about a meter away. Maguire himself is less than a meter away. Now, Having spoken to defensive coaches last week, last month, last year, over the years, they all say that when the second phase begins, you reset play. And by that, they mean you look around you and you see what's around you and you make the best possible decision to defend the second ball. Now, it seems to me that Maguire as the tallest, four inches taller, I think, than Lindelof should have gone to defend against Vestergaard or at least Pogba should have come in and supported Lindelof. Now that seems a pretty basic error to me, Duncan, um, and one which Manchester United have been guilty of. It obviously cost them a goal, cost them two points as well. But not just that. The response when um, Dancer was sent off and United you know, went down to ten, uh, South went down to ten men, did not, I think, merit what they could have done.
0: Yeah, um, you know, watching it again. Uh... I think it, it is very, very poor defending, and, and uh, Lindelof has taken the blame for it. Um, I've also seen De Gea being uh, receiving criticism because he didn't go out and take the cross himself. Um, if you watch De Gea down the years, you know that he's not a goalkeeper that comes out to take cross balls. Um, and it it was, um, I think, just outside his six yard box, so it's an unlikely one for him to go for. Their zonal marking, um, it seems, at the the initial corner kick. Um, Paul Pogba is sleeping, allowing Danny Ings in. No surprise there. We've seen that time and time again from Paul Pogba. Uh, but I think you're right to identify that Harry Maguire um, kind of sees responsibility when the ball comes back in. So when Danso has the ball, there are three Southampton players in the Manchester United penalty area. Um, Danso himself, who has it, who Ashley Young is coming out to, um, to put pressure on. There's one other Southampton player on the far left-hand corner of the box, not really very significant to play, and then Vestegaard in the middle, um, with four Manchester United players relatively close to him. Maguire looks over, points to his teammates, as if to say, you look after him, and stands in the middle of the 6 Sigshard box, essentially doing nothing. There's no player for him to cover. Um, if the ball comes into where he's standing, De Gea would be able to take it because it would be unchallenged. Um, and I think you're right. Maguire there is the is the best header of the ball in the team. He's certainly the best defensive header of the ball in the team. He could um, easily go to Vestegard in that situation because there's nothing Yes, There's no men for him to cover. There's no men for him to go to. There's no danger in the position he takes up. Um And it's another worry for Manchester United. And it's another example of Harry Maguire for all his qualities as a um, defender in one-on-one duels and a defender in aerial situations when the ball is actually at him and his qualities when he's got the ball at his feet. Um, Positionally, he's not the smartest and he makes these kind of mistakes. And while it may seem um, slightly unfair to criticise him for that goal, um, as well as the goal he was clearly at fault for against Crystal Palace. He could have intervened in that situation and he could have made a difference in that situation. And the failure to make the correct decision um, hurt his team again. And and remember, we're talking here about a player that Manchester United have put down a transfer fee of £85 million for. Given huge salary to, have made the most expensive central defender in the world. Um, they've been looking to improve their central defence for years. They've had manager after manager saying we need to improve in that situation. They finally choose to sign this player, and he's not the finished article. Um, and uh, when you have positional problems as a central defender, when you're lacking in pace as he is, you're going to have problems for your team down the line. Um, and this is costing Manchester United points against opposition that they would expect to take more points against, they'd expect to beat Crystal Palace, and they'd certainly expect to win at Southampton from the position they'd got themselves in, which was 1-0 up, and as Willy Gunnar Solskjaer said, they'd made it easy for themselves to to play from a stable platform and take advantage of their pace in the counter-attack. That's that's the kind of match situation he wants to suck the other teams into him and then go and score uh, two and goal number three on the break. Um, so they're they're giving away points because the the biggest investment of their summer transfer window has flaws in his game and flaws in his game that you wonder whether Solskjaer is capable of coaching um, to. Level where he gets them out of him. And you wonder if the people around Solskjaer, the assistants he has, are capable of taking on that role and turning him into the the more complete defender. I think he's never going to be a complete defender because he doesn't have the pace to be a complete defender, but to turn him into the more complete defender he should be, given the investment they've made him. Well,
1: with only one win in his first four Premier League matches. uh, Things are not looking great for the Gunnar all sure, as regards to the start of the season. However, you can still count on some old friends, Duncan can't he, with regards to um, not pointing out any flaws or making excuses for him regarding um, the job he has in front of him. Because Paul Scholes uh, made some very interesting comments in the wake of that draw at Southampton, which you know, if you're not a former Manchester United player. And teammate of Oligo and Solskjaer, you might have thought, well, let's just say twice about saying.
0: <laughs> yeah, look, um, I've, I've said this many times last season. Um, I'll say it again, I've yet to hear any of that class of um, former Manchester United players who are teammates of Solskjaer, who are prominent in the British media, commenting on Manchester United games utter a single word of criticism about a manager who is now on a run of three wins in his last 16 competitive matches who has one clean sheet in those games who has during that period had a run of seven defeats in nine matches which is the worst run of Manchester United results in his entire lifetime nothing has been criticised by these people uh, you know, Paul Scholes is the most prominent amongst them, given the degree of criticism he has of pretty much everyone else in the, the English game. It seems, um, you know, that's why I gave him the uh, the the, um, the nickname of the Precious One because he does seem to be precious. He seems to be untouchable, um, and I, I I don't see how you can credibly comment on these Manchester United performances without making the slightest bit of criticism of a manager who who has made obvious mistakes. Um, What Skoll said on Premier League television after the match was, um, you have to feel there is a good three or four transfer windows before they get to where they want to be. And then 15 minutes later, it was um, United are United, I think, you almost have to write United off for the next two years, this team. I think until Oli Gunnar has cleared everything he wants out, there's four or five transfer windows. United are going to be behind Manchester City, Liverpool, Chelsea and Tottenham. So he's saying there that it's going to take four or five transfer windows for Manchester United to get back into the Champions League. And that essentially that Solskjaer should be excused everything until he's had four or five transfer windows um, to resolve the problems of the, of the club. I mean, it's not realistic. It's, um, I, it, you can argue that Manchester United need, need substantial work. Obviously, they do. But to separate out the manager's own performances and say, um, he's untouchable, let's not ask any questions about what he's doing until he's had two years, two further years, in which to rebuild the team. Um, it just the contrast with, with what Scholes was saying before Solskjaer took the job and you know the, the claims we had that Manchester United would be all they really needed to get themselves back into competition in the Premier League was for the players to be given freedom and confidence. Because that, that's what we were hearing from these same people. Um, before Solskjaer was appointed that the, the team was fundamentally okay and the problem was the way they were being managed and the fact that they um, they didn't feel free to express themselves and to be able to attack in the Manchester United way in inverted commas. Solskjaer gave them that and we saw the result. So... Um, what is the fundamental problem here? We know that we know there's a problem with the ownership. We know there's a problem with the executive vice chairman. We know there's a problem with the players, but if you can't see that there's also a problem with the manager who's in charge at the moment, um, you have a problem yourself.
1: There's certainly a problem with the regards to the untouchability. I mean, only in Premier League history, uh, Arsene Wenger and. So Alex Ferguson earned that particular uh, uh, ability to you know, say that, well, you can't sack me because of what I've achieved. But they earned it through winning trophies, through proving themselves, something Solskjaer has not managed to do. And as you point out in terms of the um, statistics with regards to games, lost, won, uh, Duncan, then he's far from being untouchable. How much of this do you think is down to the fact that Woodward stroke the Glazers, I think capitulated far too early after that um, unlikely overcoming of Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League and gave him the job on the back of a run of games which didn't exactly uh, prove his worth in terms of the ability to manage long-term. It was more of a kind of elated stroke kind of... You know, instinct to a point because he was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer he had had a good run of wins against weaker teams in the Premier League and then a couple of good wins in the Champions League they could have waited until the end of the season and if they had would we actually see him as permanent manager now given the results?
0: Well with the Glazers and Ed Woodward you can't rule anything out in terms of decision making but it would have been an absurd decision to make him permanent manager at the end of the season after that um terrible run they had for um, the end of the season. Um, I think you, you can't you can't separate out here that Solskjaer buys the Glazers and Woodward time. One is cheap. <laughs> you know, if they'd gone for any of the big name managers um, that you would have thought were more logical choices, if they'd, they'd gone all the way to try and get Maurizio Pochettino, for example, it would have cost them tens of millions to um, extract him from Tottenham and appoint him. Instead, they got a, a coach that they can give a relatively low salary by Premier League standards to um, and who doesn't complain publicly um, about what has been made available to um, in the transfer market. Um, and also they get a, a man who has huge affinity with the Manchester United support and who has a, a kind of a degree of insurance based on his track record as a player and his personality as an individual um, that he wouldn't have if he was in the same position at any other club. You know, if he was in charge of Chelsea now or Arsenal, having inherited the job in the fashion he inherited it um, and delivered the results he has delivered across the course of his time as manager, um, I think there'll be very few of the of the club supporters still backing him. But there is a degree of backing for Solskjaer, which I think you can only really rationally say is because it's Solskjaer, not because um, of what he has done in the job or his track record as a manager. I mean, this is a man who's been in football for eight years as a manager before he got the Manchester United job and his track record was relegating Cardiff City and winning some trophies in Norway. Um, He never gets this job if it wasn't for his history as his player and I think he doesn't keep the job this long unless it was for his history as a player.
1: Well, I can't disagree with you, Duncan. At the same time, I think you could argue that, uh, and even um, people at Chelsea would say that Frank Lampard wouldn't have got his post currently if it hadn't been for his name and his reputation with the club. Although, of course, he's he's very much um, less into his career at Chelsea than Solskjaer is. Um, But uh, time will tell with regards to both of those ex players and their fortunes in that club. It is the first podcast of the week and therefore it's Heroes and Villains time. Um, Always an interesting one. Um, And as we said before and we always say, please send us your own suggestions um, and we will keep that debate going throughout the week. Duncan, I'm going to give you the first option. Uh, I believe you want to choose a hero of the week. Please tell us who it is and why he deserves that accolade.
0: Um, hero this week will be Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, it's an interesting little story from Italy in that uh, Serie A have introduced these um, <laughs> like Cub Scout merit badges. Um, if you were a voted Player of the Year or Goalkeeper of the Year, Defender of the Year, Young Player of the Year, um, Serie A now allows you to wear a badge on your strip, um, identifying you as the holder of that particular title. And most of the people who won those titles, for example, um, Caledou, Kulubai um, and Niccolò Zaniolo at uh, Roma are wearing their badges, but Cristiano Ronaldo has decided he will not do so because he doesn't want um, to elevate himself above the team. Uh, and I think he deserves a bit of respect for uh, for. Making that decision and deciding that those kind of badges aren't of interest to him, what he wants to do is demonstrate his qualities on the field of play. Did he though? Is it
1: true that he did so on the best step over badge? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Only early in his career.
1: I <laughs> know he doesn't do it any. It's a shame. Okay,
0: let's go, it, it, top, let's go for the Cub. He put it on the inside of his shirt. Inside of
1: his shirt. Let's go for the Cub Scout then um, theme. Did he do tying defenders in knots badge? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that one. <laughs> Come on, Cristiano. You know it makes sense. Uh, okay, so I'm going to nominate my villain of the last few days. And quite frankly, there is only one candidate, and that is Imeric Laporte. And the reason for that being not only... Did he uh, take out the great Webster momentum run uh, at the Etihad Stadium? But he managed in doing so to confirm himself as the least tactical fouling player in Pep Guardiola's team. He's almost the untactical fouler. Not only does he uh, foul in the wrong place, but he gets himself injured in the process which it looks like is going to see Manchester City miss his very, very valuable services for the next few weeks. So I'm out, Laporte, you are the villain of this week for the fact that you have not taken heed of Mr Guardiola's very, very um, excellent coaching with regards to how you should be tackling in that area and how you should not be getting injured in doing so. If you disagree or agree with our heroes and villains, as I said before, then please continue the discussion with us. Um, you can get Duncan on at Duncan Castles, me on at Garbo SJ, or as the Kaiser duck likes to say, Garbo SJ. And, um, also at transfer podcast is our Twitter account to continue the debate. If you like us, please give us something back, which would be a five star review on iTunes. That way we expand the community and we can continue the debate as well. Um, Okay, we do agree that it's unusual for us not to deliver you a podcast on Monday this week, but as I'm sure you'll agree, having listened to everything in this particular episode, uh, we thought it best to analyse things after the window was closed. And we will be back, of course, on Wednesday with your questions answered. Please tweet them to our transfer podcast or to the accounts that I mentioned before for Duncan and myself and we will put them together and we'll bring that to you tomorrow. All it is for me to say is thanks for listening and we shall see you through the window on Wednesday. Goodbye.